I was a dead man walking. And though God was working on me for some time and he was regularly calling me to come alive, I was ignoring him. I was intentionally not wanting to listen to God telling me, begging me, whispering and yelling to me to come alive. And that all changed in the fall of 1998. I was 30 years old. Our second child, Kaylee, was born in August of that year. I had just been added to a test team to go test an aircraft out at Edwards Air Force Base in California. And the reason that I was added to that test team was because we had had two fatal accidents in the previous 24 months, killing an instructor and a cadet in each accident. I was spending time away from my family. I was reading a little booklet from time to time that my mom gave me <laughs> back in 1986, actually, six days into my basic training, a little booklet called Thought Conditioners. And I was going on walks that fall. We lived at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. We lived in the foothills. It's gorgeous. I could literally walk out the door and be on a hike within seconds or minutes. And I took that little booklet with me. Then, though my mom gave it to me in 1986, and I read it a little bit then, I did not start to digest it until 1998. I was finally listening to God. I was coming alive. Mm. I remember being convicted of mistakes that I had made in my life. I felt convicted about things I had done in my marriage. Now, if you had met me back then, if you had met me that fall, you would have probably thought, that guy's got it, got it together. Because I could play the game pretty well. You would not have known that that was a dead man coming to life. You would have thought that man was alive. The image management that I could do back then and still do today was rather amazing. Because on the outside, I was a, success, a successful person. I had a good military career going. I was married, had a couple kids, had a house, well, at least a loner house at the Air Force Academy. We had it, we had it pretty good. I was a good guy. But I was being called from death to life. I look back now, not so much then, and I look at all the multiple things God allowed into my life or that happened in life, like the deaths of two friends and two cadets that I didn't even know in an aircraft that shouldn't, people shouldn't die in, not a trainer. I had two little kids. Zach was three. Kaylee was just born. I mean, I should be overjoyed and happy, but I was learning to be a father. And I was being awakened. I mean, that song has hit me hard this week. Harder today now that I hear them cranking it out. God was saying, come alive. Come alive. Come alive. And so I ask you here sitting here and those of you watching online, 
what's God saying to you right now? I don't mean like necessarily the second, but maybe, but more like this time in your life. Have you shut him out? Have you tried to ignore the things that he's trying to bring into your life when he's saying, come alive, come alive? I often didn't discover that God would yell quite like the song, but my, 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 my soul was feeling that. I was like, man, there is something. I couldn't put my finger on it. That first song I had been searching all my life, I didn't even know I was searching. There was this God-shaped hole in me that only God could fill, that I tried to fill with so many things. How about you? Do you feel God calling you to come alive? Is it time to listen? Is it time to say, you know what? I, I don't know why I trust myself so stinking much. I've let myself down so many times. I've let others down. But I today, God, I'm going to trust that what you say matters most. And what you say about me, what you say about humanity, what you've done for humanity, I'm, I'm going to start to try to follow, believe, trust that. How many of you have seen Top Gun Maverick? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you haven't seen it? You're welcome to leave. <laughs> and go see it. No, it's a great movie. But... There's a scene or two in there, and because they actually did some flying in the F-18s, so they actually were pulling G's. And there's a scene where something happens called G-lock, or G-induced loss of consciousness. Now, I'm going to try and explain it to you, because this is what I was feeling as I was coming alive. It's like you're in an aircraft, you're pulling G's, and what happens is if the G onset rate is rapid, like in an F-16, worse than an F-18, if the G onset comes on you so quickly and you don't get ahead of it, first of all, you're wearing a G suit. So there's a G suit that has an air bladder here and it has an air bladder on your thighs and on your calves. And the reason is those are your major muscle groups and it pushes against you. It starts to inflate as you start to pull G's and it tells your brain, hey, G, the G suit's inflating, push against it. Now, I don't want to describe to you, well, maybe I will describe to you, you're supposed to act like you're like that, okay? It's a maneuver you do. You're grunting, but you hold your breath, and you're, and you're tightening all those muscles. The reason is all the blood from the gravity pulling away the G's is pushing all the blood to your toes. So what happens is you get first what's called gray vision. And I experienced that one time in a T-37 when I was in pilot training, and my instructor, Mike Vanzo, towards the end of our little time together, he thought it would be funny to have me lean over and look at something, and then he loaded up the aircraft. That aircraft didn't have G-suit, and I mean, we were into four Gs, and I'm like, what? And my color vision went away, and it was black and white. And you're like, that's kind of weird. I was a student pilot, so I really didn't know at the time, hey, I probably should have done my L1 maneuver, or M1 maneuver, they had called it as well. Well, then here's what happens after gray vision. And we're talking, this is milliseconds here, this, this happening. Then you get what's called tunnel vision. And if you saw the movie, that's, they showed, they tried to show that, where all of a sudden you see these black lines, I kid you not, coming in from the side of your peripheral vision, and you're just like, well, that's weird. And let me say this, if those lines meet, then you have no vision, but right after that is G-lock. You lose consciousness. And I remember when he did that to me, I was sitting there, I bent over, and he loaded up the aircraft, and I'm like, I couldn't lift my head up. The G-force was so hard, I was like, geez, it's only four Gs. 
and I'm trying to pull my head up, and then the gray, and then the tunnel. And I didn't G-lock, but if you watch the movie, or if you go and Google, or go to YouTube and say G-lock, there's this period when you finally come to, hopefully that your aircraft hasn't hit the ground or hit a mountain, but there's this period where you're waking up. You are situationally unaware, and you're flying an aircraft. And that's what it felt like to me back in 1998, is I, I just was all of a sudden discovering these things. I, I was paying attention more. I was talking to my wife in ways that I never had in our marriage. I was like, I, I, something's, I just feel something's going on. We were going to the base chapel, and I remember Chaplain Braswell. I can remember that man's name. I don't know that I met him, but maybe one time. But he would speak on the Sundays when I was home, and we would go, and I felt like he was talking to me. Sean, this message is for you. And I was like, dude, does he? What is he? How does he know? There was this amazing feeling of coming alive. And I ask you, are you feeling it? Are you aware of the God-shaped hole in your life that he is trying to fill? And for so often, we just try to hold it off, and we try to fill that with so many other things. Some things are good. Some things are bad. And he's screaming quietly, come alive. Darren, if you'd put up the passage from John 10, John 10, 10, as a matter of fact, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Another version says, have life abundantly. I thought I was living this good life. I discovered there was an abundant life. There was this difference of the life I thought I was living, thought I was accomplishing, and the life God desired for me as he called me alive. Are you feeling that? Do you sense that? We as Americans, we pile so much into our lives. Not just Americans, but probably all of Western culture especially. We're individualistic. We try to do, do, do. We think that those things are going to fulfill. And we aren't content. Deep down, we're discontented. But to the world, we, we show we're contented. Or we think, hey, that next thing, that next thing, that next thing. All the while, God's saying, Come alive. Come alive. You know, I have found that uh, as, I, as I have tried since 1998 to pay attention more and more to God in my life, or maybe a different way of saying it is to, to maybe try to center my life more on him instead of on me, and that's, that's been a journey that's not an accomplishment by any means. But I've learned these things that I'd like to try to kind of write up here on the board. Well, let me jump into this first. John 15, 1 through 5. If you'll throw that up there, Darren. Jesus is talking about a grapevine here. He's trying to describe what it's like to center on him. What it's like to abide is another word. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you, he's telling them. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitless, fruitful rather, unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. 
for apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me, let me show a graphic of a grapevine that is connected to the vine. Darren, can you bring that photo up, please? And one that's not. Which one looks healthy? The first one. Grapevines can't image manage, apparently. The grapevine on the left, all the branches are connected to the vine. The vine is strong and healthy and providing the nourishment. And look what happens. Look at the amazing fruit that's produced. And the one on the right, not so much. And, and if you just step back from that for a minute, and you go, oh, that's a cute little analogy, Jesus. He's talking about us. So the picture on the right is death, dead people. And the picture on the left is alive. Fully alive people, coming fully alive people. Which do you want to be? So the question I have, you can take that away. What does that look like for us? What does that look like to live a God-centered life, right? What does that look like? You got this God-centered life. You got this me-centered life. What does it look like to move from a me-centered life to a God-centered life? I've often asked that. First and foremost, I think it's just listening. I believe the Holy Spirit is working on us long before we're even aware of it. I'm, I'm confident of that. I, I think about my mom sending me that booklet. I think about the way I was raised. I think about uh, a navigator named Jeff Ryan who was who was talking about Jesus to me back in like 1992 to 96 when I would go on temporary duty with him. All these things, and, and that's just a few that were happening in my life that I kind of just kind of held at bay. But then in 98, it's like the perfect storm hit when I was like, I'm going to listen. Something is going on here that I need to be aware of. And deep down, I wanted to become fully alive. I wanted that verse to mean something to me. And so I just asked myself, well, this is me looking back, not, not the wisdom of a 30-year-old. <laughs> Sorry if you're 30. <laughs> or younger. But success was a big part of what I wanted to be in life. Now look, the reality of it is when we graduate high school or we move out of our house or we go to college and then graduate, the reality of it is we are supposed to enter into adulthood. That is a human thing. We are not supposed to hang out with mom and dad. Now, you may do it for a time. You may come back for a time. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about work. We all got to work. Regardless of what you do, we all need to go put some hours in to earn some money to you know, feed ourselves and maybe our family if we have a family. But, but success, accomplishment, was a big driver for me. I didn't understand that then. Now I'm starting to understand, man, I was trying to just make people like me. If I could be successful, if I could be one of the best, then you, you were almost forced to love me or like me. God comes along and says, listen, listen, Sean, you are significant in my eyes. How I define you should matter most. Not the way you look at yourself, 
Not the way others look at you or think of you, but what I think of you. And I hung my son on a cross for you. Oh, oh. that's love that has nothing to do with my performance. I'm just going to write some other ones up here. There's another one that a lot of us do. We love security. Oh, my gosh, we Americans really love it, right? Our 401Ks, our 403Bs, our big houses, our safe, our safe communities. Well, what happens when I'm 70 and what happens when I'm 80? Well, security, security, I got to have security. Man, I know I did. Well, you know, I don't want to work my entire life, so I want to I have a secure retirement. That's, that's understandable. And God says, yep, I get that, I get that. But when you surrender and trust me, you start to do those things, you'll understand that I have you very secure. I'm your security. In his word, he says he will provide everything we need. Now, it doesn't say everything we want. And my list of wants is pretty big, starting with some cool cars and maybe a P-51 Mustang like Tom got to fly in Maverick too. Anyways, or Maverick. Surrender and trust. And here's the thing I want you to understand about all of these, is this is not a one-way street. I wish it was, but it's not. But it's, it's about movement. Uh, I have certainly done this and come back, and then this and come back. But it's about, hopefully, continuous movement towards a God-centered life, not a me-centered life. And so the, that hole that we fill, that, like, there's got to be something more. Uh, how do I live a life of purpose and meaning and significance? I fully believe, not just based on my experience, but looking at so many other people that I've connected to here and elsewhere, that it's this movement from me-centered to God-centered that's so vital. Let me put a few others up here. This one, oh my gosh, fast-paced. And I read in that email that Justin's talking about earlier, Look at this word, sacred pace. And I thought, geez, Louise. I mean, I read that email that he sent me a couple days ago, and I was like, wow, I don't know that anybody could look at my life and say, you know what? I know Sean, and he lives at a sacred pace. How about you? I don't know about you, but so often I think that busyness keeps me going. It's like maybe I don't like to be alone. Hmm. Maybe I think if I rushed my kids or grandkids to every little activity and event on the earth that they'll become the next pro ball player or the next famous so-and-so. Hogwash. But we do. We, we, we just move and move and move and move and move. And then we crash and watch TV or check Facebook for hours or whatever you do. And I, I asked myself this week, and really this last couple months, how can I live at a slower pace? Guess what? I may accomplish less, but I actually have a feeling by living at a sacred pace and a slower pace, I will actually accomplish more because I am leaning on God instead of doing it myself. How about you? How is that movement for you? Here's another one. The acquisition of stuff. And I'm going to write underneath here, and I'll explain this temporary. And the acquisition of relationship or relationships as eternal. Bill Hybels wrote a book, and his 
former associate pastor at the time, John Ortberg, talked about this in a, a thing I watched this week, where he said a guy had sticky notes, and he was given a presentation to a group of people, and he said, I want you to write on one color sticky notes the word temporary. Okay? Do, do a bunch of them. Temporary. Write it on there. And I want you to write eternal on the other color sticky note. And then I want you to go home and I want you to label the things that we have or own with one or two, one of those sticky notes. And his argument was that all the stuff that we have, it doesn't go with us. Now, I, I like stuff, folks. If you want to talk merino wool clothing, bring it on. I love it. Let's talk. Maybe I don't know about what you know and I need to buy what you got. I get it. If you want to talk about flashlights, oh, look out, folks. It's a, it's a problem. <laughs> Julie is not here to second that, but it's a problem. The point is, what, what is eternal is relationships. So this guy brought this, he, had, he was on stage, and he had like a dresser and a desk, and maybe he had a little car, and each one of those got this temporary thing, right? You don't take it with you. It's for this life. Sure, we need some of those things. Sure, we're going to use some of those things. But the eternal things were the relationships, and so to move at a pace that says, I, I'm going to value some relationships. I'm going to get to know some people. One of my best friends, actually probably my best friend in life, aside from Julie, his name is Mike. We worked together at Feral Gas years ago. We still get together once a month because we are like, I don't know what to say. We're like blood brothers, if that helps you understand. We are very close, and I value that relationship. I value the relationship with my family. My mom and my stepdad, Jim, we try to, I try to have breakfast. We've tried to have breakfast once a week for over a decade plus now because those relationships are eternal. Those things we will carry with us. And then one thing I want to write up here is a lot of times we have a lot of anxiety whoa, and stress in this life. We actually have some discontentment even though we don't always say it. And over here, we can have something called peace and joy and hope and contentment. Now, if you had not heard me any today, maybe you haven't, maybe you're sleeping, that's fine. But if you were to look at those lists, which life do you think you would rather live? And based on your schedule, your daily habits, which life are you currently living? So I'll let you answer that. I know that I answered that. I still answer that, and I still move back and forth. Don't get me wrong. This is not a rival. This is movement. Not a rival, movement. And when I have friends in my life, I think about the men in my Saturday morning men's group, that group of guys. There are some guys in there that are just starting to open the Bible in the last few months for the first time in their life, or they've re-engaged it after many, many months or years. And you know what? They've helped me continue to move. It's not like I'm saying, hey, boys, you got this all figured out. Just do what I do. It's like, no, no, here's where I fail. Here's where I've succeeded. Often, this life is also about image managing, and this life is about authenticity. And realizing that, look, if God says he loves me, regardless of all my faults, and he knows them better than I do, then I can be open about those faults with other people, and they can love me. 
for who I am, not for what I do. What would your calendar say? If someone looked at your schedule, are you trying to fill and make a life of meaning and a life of purpose with the left circle or the right circle? Are you trying a few of these things out to just see? Could, could, could the God of the universe, could it be true? Could the Bible actually be true? And that God knows what we need more than we know. And that God wants what's best for us, it says. He wants what's best for us. I don't always believe that. And so I always go out and then, well, I better secure that on my own, whatever that is. And God says, look, I will provide everything you need. Trust. Obey. We have something around here at Shoal Creek called the Journeys of the Disciple Life. And those are movements as well. Moving from earner to heir and understanding that as you trust God for who he says he is, you don't have to earn his love. You simply get invited into his family. He says, come alive. Join the family. The second one is self-hearted to soft-hearted. And to move from this hard heart, and I had a hard heart. You may not have known it years and years ago, because I still have somewhat of a hard heart, but that heart is softening as I engage God's word and obey it. I want to read you something that my wife gave me this journal, and I dug this up yesterday. My wife gave me this journal back in, well, now it's cracking. Well, it's old, like me. She gave me this back for Christmas, 1998, that same year. And I don't know if you've, it's called My Utmost for His Highest, the journal, and it's by Oswald Chambers. And I can tell you what, I should not have started here. <laughs> it's like a PhD level of theology that's like, what, God? But on January 1st of 1999, I made a commitment that I said, I've called myself a Christian most of my life. And I don't really know if I know exactly what that means. I've celebrated Easter and Christmas. And I think I understood that Jesus came as a baby and he died on the cross and he did that for me. But it was more this level. It wasn't this level. And I wrote this January 1st. <laughs> Today I make a commitment to be a more faithful and practicing Christian, more loving husband, more patient father. I said, thank you, God, for your gracious gift, Jesus Christ, my Savior. And then I went through this, and I can't show you every page, but about two-thirds of the pages have my writing on it. And there were often days that I wrote, I have no idea what you mean, Oswald Chambers. You, I have no idea what this means, God. But that's okay. And as I did this, I started to just get my fingerprints on the Bible and methodically just move through it so that I could understand maybe the storyline a little better. About a week ago, my good friend Richard Potter, he shared something on Facebook that I want to show you. Darren, can you bring up that image, please? Richard posted that in 2001, he started journaling. That's engaging God's word and then writing about it. Engaging God's word and what can you do differently about it. You know, it's obedience as well as just engagement. And he's put on Facebook, he's like, oh my gosh, these are all of my journals. Now, I can tell you that I don't have that many filled. But Richard took that 
that habit of engaging God's word so that it could soften his heart quite seriously. And when I think about that, I go, wow, that's a wonderful movement this way. That's a movement to say what God says matters most in my life, not what I think. God's will matters most, not my will. God's desires for my life matter more than my desires, good or bad. Receiver to giver is another journey that we have. Moving, not just receiving God's grace, but then offering it. There are people in each of our lives, I, I'm confident, that we don't get along with, or maybe we don't want to necessarily have a relationship with, or they wronged us. And God wants us at some point to move towards them or at least forgive them, to maybe share what he's doing in our lives with them. You don't have to go and evangelize the world as much as you can tell folks what God's doing in yours. Roy has coined a phrase around here. Roy's our, well, one of our primary speakers and our visionary here. He founded this church, and he says something like this. Be spiritually obvious without being religiously obnoxious. Don't just be a receiver, be a giver. And we'll just move through them quickly. Isolation to community is journey four, if you will, or the fourth one that I'm going to mention. Realizing that, look, if you try to live an isolated life, you get taken out. And that's not the way God intended it to. So finding a few close friends to, to move through these journeys with is amazing. The next one's consumer to producer. We in the Western world and we in America, we have become a consumeristic society. Duh. And we've become a consumeristic church. And sadly, we go to a lot of churches. I did this. We church shop and we look for something that's going to feed us instead of saying, wait a minute, the church is supposed to be the group of people that reach the world with the good news. So we're supposed to move from consumer to producer. And that's a journey. next one is moving from charitable to extravagant with our time, with our talents, and guess what? With our money. God says, look, I want to see all of your money. I want to be involved with how you save, how you spend, how you use debt, and how you give. Because my kingdom is important enough that I think you ought to value it with your resources. And we move from being just a little charitable to being extravagant with our giving. And that's a challenging journey. And yet Jesus says, I've given the most extravagant gift of all. He gave himself. Traveler to guide is the last one. It's learning to disciple someone else to realize, wow, it's not all about me. There are folks that need and to hear the good news, and I can help guide and teach and train and, and help them obey, the, obey God. So all of those journeys are ways to engage. As a matter of fact, we're going to be doing those starting October 2nd, one a week. And we're going to be moving through those journeys. So I think it would be an exciting time to, to really dig in and, and, and move on those journeys. Let me finish with one final story. I learned to fly back in 1987. I was 18 years old. And I was in a glider program at the Air Force Academy called Soaring. I, I like the name, actually. And, and I remember sitting in that yellow glider for the first time with the instructor pilot behind me. And he's telling me stuff, and I'm taking in maybe a, a one-tenth of what he's saying because I was nervous. I was not the kind of person that goes flying and doesn't get airsick. Okay? I was the kind of person that goes flying and gets airsick. So I knew that was a possibility. And I'm supposed to be watching this tow plane that's pulling us with this cable thing. 
and, and he's chattering in my ear, and we lift off, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And, and it's exciting, but it's crazy, and it's good, but it's weird, and I don't think man was actually made to fly, even though some people would argue. And we're flying up, and we go through several different flights, and then I get to my solo. They're going to let this 17-year-old kid with maybe six or seven flights go solo. And I remember sitting up there about the time. So when you're, when you're flying behind this tow plane, it's not a lot of fun. You're, you're kind of bouncing, and you're supposed to stay in this, this rectangle, if you will, behind them. But when you finally get up to altitude, right near the Rocky Mountains there, you do something called release, pull twice. And when you reach down and you pull that lever and you pull it twice to hopefully make sure it, it releases, the tow plane and the cable go. And you float. And, and I was thinking about that this week. The freedom that I felt in that moment is the freedom that I so often feel as I move towards that centering of my life on God. There's a weightlessness to it. There's this, I don't know, there's an exhilaration. I, I was singing Van Halen. I mean, I was cranking Van Halen. Yeah! You know, I'm singing this stupid song. Didn't know I was pressing the mic with my finger or my knee. They were hearing it. You're like, you're a moron. But <laughs> the, the joy, the freedom that I felt as, as, as I released from that tow plane is very much like the freedom that I feel when God says, your sins are forgiven. You get my grace. You get my love. I know all about you. I know what you've done, what you haven't done. I know what you're doing, what you're not doing. I know what you won't do and what you will do. I know that. And I love you. And he offers us freedom as he releases us from that sin, from that guilt, from that shame, much like I release from that tow plane. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I, uh, I hope that that song, Come Alive, can echo in our, our ears and maybe hopefully in our hearts this week that that song might just sit there and, and help us to hear you, to, to pay attention to you with intentionality, to look at the things going on in our lives and maybe we don't feel fulfilled. Maybe we think we're just existing. You know, I feel like maybe I'm a mole in the ground just digging random tunnels versus an eagle soaring high and going, oh, I see now. Give us the, the ears and the heart to hear you whispering, come alive. Whether it's pain, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's trouble with kids, what, what, whatever it is. Help us see through that to you and that you might just be using those things to call us alive. Help us to abide, Lord. Help us to remain in you. Help us to look at that image of a dead grapevine and go, you know what? That thing is not connected to the vine. It's not going to produce fruit. But if we remain in you, we can do everything. If we don't, we can do nothing. And finally, God, help us to learn to fly. And help us help others learn to fly. Thank you for Jesus who makes all of this possible. That we can relate to him and therefore have a relationship with you as a member of your family who's come alive. And in his name I pray. Amen.